Hello everyone, welcome to Intimate Animation, brought to you by the online animation magazine Squiggly.com. This series covers animation that takes on adult themes of love, relationships, and sex. So steal yourself as there's some frank discussion ahead. And we're back for another season of Intimate Animation. I'm Ben Mitchell, joined by Laura Beth Cowley. Hello, Laura. Hello. So it's been a little while since the last season, but there's a whole bunch of new films that I'm quite excited to talk about, and TV shows and various uh, projects and things that have been happening that deal with uh, themes of love, sex, and relationships, that being the main thrust of this podcast series. Later on in the podcast, we're going to be talking with Caitlin McCarthy, who has a film in the Encounters Festival next month. We're going to be talking about that, as well as her work in general. But yeah, I think probably what is worth talking about, something that's freshest in our minds, uh, is news that we found out just a couple of hours ago, at the time of recording this, it will have been a few days when it comes out, uh, that Richard Williams passed away which is uh, very sad. It's bizarre, because it kind of felt like he was indestructible, if that makes any sense. He just seemed like he was never going away. And, uh, you know, he's been working down the road from where we are over at Ardman. They kind of had him set up for, you know, the last few years working on this project that I think a lot of people kind of felt was going to be his magnum opus, and hopefully we'll see the fruits of that in some form or other. I don't really know beyond the film he did prologue what the state of that was or how much further along that kind of went. But Richard Williams, of course, uh, we talk about him quite a lot on the various podcast strands and on Squiggly in general. He is, of course, the author of The Animator's Survival Kit and known for the Thief and the Cobbler film, which eventually sort of saw the light of day in a form that I, I gather he was quite happy with. I know he introduced it at various events and things like that. But of course, mainly what he's known for, and certainly this is what all the news media is citing, is uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And uh, with pretty good reason. Like, every once in a while, I think you'll encounter someone who's a detractor of that film. And you've got to be like, why? Like, what is there not to like about Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I guess nowadays it'd be seen as quite problematic, <laughs> but... Mm, I suppose. I mean, it's 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 hard to kind of gauge what the tone was, or what the sort of vibe was when it came out. It's sort of set in the kind of golden age of, like, post-wartime cartoons. And I guess it was probably siphoning those sort of sensibilities, those kind of sort of ways you would see, you know, depictions of booksome, bosomey vixen women, uh, a very kind of red-hot Riding Hood-informed character in Jessica Rabbit. And she, I guess, is definitely worth talking about as kind of an icon of modern animation. Like, she's regarded as, I think, a very classic animation bombshell, but almost ludicrously so. Like, mm -hmm. the degree to which she's so out of proportion and so chesty. I think I remember, maybe it's on the DVD or something, but talking about like how, because of course Bob Hoskins playing the character, he's not in the room with Jessica Rabbit, he's in the room with like a bunch of socks on sticks or something to mm. kind of, you know, take his attention and get his eye lines right. And apparently when he finally saw the film, he was a bit like staggered by just how ridiculous she was, which I can kind of understand. I mean, there's sort of some stuff that was pretty on the nose there. Yeah. You would think that if she was going to come up as something that was sort of like problematic and dated and misogynistic in terms of how overtly male fantasy-esque she is, it would have come up at this point. I think the reason why Who Framed Roger Rabbit is such a iconic film is because it obviously has like every iconic cartoon character up to that point in it as well. Because it had like Dumbo and... Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse and just everyone. Which is kind of like, in its own way, is a weird thing to think about now. Like, can you imagine making a film where you could have got the licensing for all of those characters in one film if you weren't the guy that invented all of them? I think now it would be easier because doesn't Disney own everything? True. I think at the time it was a big issue. Like, I think there was something... There was something about, like, Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse had to have the exact same amount of screen time to the frame. Hmm. 
Um, and I think similarly with Daffy Duck and Donald Duck in the earlier scene. Which scene. makes sense. It, it kind I mean, of it does. Ca- it makes it's sense. It's kind of treating them a bit like actors, which is a bit weird. Yeah, it's like it's a bit diva-ish. Yeah. <laughs> They're not real. Like, um, if you don't give me your same screen time as that bloody duck, I'll walk. <laughs> I do imagine Jessica Rabbit was probably the first like crush a lot of kids would have had because it, before you had crushes on adult humans, there would have been something quite weirdly desirable about Jessica Rabbit at, even as a young child. I, uh, I I didn't hate her. I don't think I, like, fancied her. I mean, I was young, but I also, I, I was into the female form from, like, a pretty ridiculously young age. But I think even as a kid, like, like it wasn't really very titillating. I know, I guess it was just so overt. What I really liked, though, I loved the musical number, um, which I, I thought the, um, I just liked it as a song, like, that particular sure arrangement of the song. <laughs> no, uh, Mum, I really just like the song. That's why I keep rewinding it, Mum. <laughs> that bit's just really like fuzzy now. <laughs> yeah, that's why I had to buy the uh, the DVD. When it came out, <laughs> the video had just crumbled. What I really liked was that she, the performance is her like going around all the kind of sad men in the club and kind of fing with them mm. and kind of like rubbing the bald guy's head and. There are some sort of deliberate choices with the animation that I don't think I kind of picked up on. But there's a lot of very unreal movement with her, which is interesting given, you know, how much Richard Williams is sort of known for animation being so kind of thought through and everything having this very kind of logical cause and effect. But I think that uh, there was a lament. um, I think we should go into this in a bit as well. But uh, in the last, I think, episode of the podcast I do with Steve and we were kind of lamenting about love death and robots and how um there was some animation that just seemed a bit lazy like it seemed like the sort of boob animation was just kind of like really sort of not very well thought through and there's a real kind of unreality to that element of her performance in Who Framed Roger Rabbit but I imagine it's a lot more kind of deliberate the way in which her sort of you know chest kind of moves in relation to her body and that kind of thing. Everything kind of moves with each other rather than sort of being secondary, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. I just thought it's definitely worth mentioning a very, very important contribution to the landscape of animation and a very kind of iconic character, certainly as regards the sort of vaguely sexual air that kind of differentiated that film from just a standard kid's animation. But yeah, sad that Richard Williams is no longer with us. Of course, uh, uh, he will not be forgotten anytime soon. That is for sure. I think it's just a real shock. I think everyone's always surprised. Was always surprised he was still going because in your head you feel like Roger Rabbit was forever ago, but it wasn't really. The eighties isn't that long ago. But yeah, he's just incredible. Mm. I'm sure we'll chat about it a bit more uh, in the the other podcast. Yeah, he's um, not really well suited for this one beyond the, that one character. Yeah. Like, there isn't a whole heap of, of um, other love, sex, and relationships-related stuff in the Pink Panther opening credits or the animated survival kit. There are some more busamy women in that book, but... Uh, That's not really... It's not really what, what we we're, we're all about. But yeah, you know, it's worth mentioning as, as two people who respect him. And I, it's sort of making me want to watch the film again. Anyway, going back to um, that point about love, death, and robots... Which, um, as I mentioned, we were kind of whinging about in the last episode. It uh, looks like that's been renewed. So, animation for adults uh, will live on on Netflix. I think it's quite odd, because I think for all of the whining everyone always does about the fact that animation isn't taken seriously and not seen as an adult medium for the most part. Mm. It really is now, I would say. I think. Mm. But I think you all still come across people at, like, you know, family gatherings or Christmas or whatever who will be like, oh, the cartoons for children, yes. Yeah. But that's, that never goes away. But that's just slight ignorance on their part more than anything else. It's not that people that enjoy animation don't think it belongs in the adult market. I don't think nowadays you really have to fight as much to sort of explain why something would possibly be done for an adult market. I mean, you do, but at least now we have more to go on than Family Guy. Yeah. But yeah, Love, Death and Robots, I think the slogan or something in the press release or a press conference or something that one of the creators uh, came up with, maybe it was David Fincher, was this is a love letter 
to nerds. And it wasn't really. It was more of a dirty limerick for virgins. Like, it was... (laughs) (laughs) True. I found what was odd is a lot of them didn't feel very well developed so the one that i know that both of us really didn't like but a lot of people freaking love is that one with the prostitute running away from the guy and then it turns out that she's the thing yeah she's a stripper i think and then yeah well that's but she has no reason to be a stripper they just need to get her clothes off halfway through yeah um, and, and you and know the I twist love... is that they're in the loop of sort of yeah. the... And you know I love a good <laughs> cyclical narrative. Yeah. This one was like, I don't care. And also that was kind of the issue with all of them is just, let's just get some tits out. Let's just get some tits out. Well, let's just get some is, tits is out. so, like, unbearably bad. Have we had people on the regular podcast that have done stuff very directly with Netflix before? I mean, yeah, in a couple of projects we've had on Have we ever asked them, like, whether they're hands-off or not? Because I feel like Netflix is very hands-off with things. You know, I'm not really sure. The shady thing about Netflix, I don't mean shady, but I mean something that is kind of noticeably different when you read about it compared to, like, how they would determine whether or not a show was worth keeping on and what shows were worth cancelling was largely down to viewing figures. And that's something that Netflix kind of has a bit of a stranglehold on. Like, they don't really reveal that. Yeah. And so there have been... So this show, Love, Death and Robots, which doesn't surprise me if it's gotten lots of views or whatever, because people have been talking about it And it, it really lot. plays into everywhere. a big market of people. Yeah. but And Netflix have promoted the shit out of it. Mm. You know, they, they were unrelenting. Now, a couple of other shows that are still ongoing. There's Bojack Horseman, mm-hmm. which I think recently unionized... There's Big Mouth, which unusually, I think, has been confirmed for three more years, Mm. which is very... It's a big commitment for an animated series. Like, I would have... Especially because I had always assumed Big Mouth was a bit more of a kind of risk because of all of the... And we like the show. Oh, I love the show. I think it's a good... I'm glad it's carrying on. I don't know people talking about it that much, though. No, that was the first thing. Like, people don't really talk about it. And half the time when I bring it up with people, they're like, oh, I hate that show. I they think can't it's get a... past certain things, which I can't really blame them for, but... People can't get past the first episode. Like, a lot yeah. of... I've had I, to I... really convince a lot of female friends of mine to get past the first episode, because obviously the first episode is all about... It's all about boys being boys and well, boys being disgusting. it's all about erections. So it's quite hard... I guess, for a lot of women to sympathise with this guy. And it was, well, they probably had to deal with that being in media to the point yeah. of utter tediousness. And I was a bit like, oh, okay, well, but this is... But I'm always like, like, wait until the third episode, and that always hooks all the women in. I guess the sort of, like, litmus test is if, you, if you're if you turned around by the hormone monstrous. Yeah. Like, she's going to be the one who will get you on board or not. Yeah. And then at that from that point on, you can kind of choose, I guess, which elements are... Because there are still elements that I'm not that crazy about. I don't particularly care about certain characters, like the coach or Jay or whatever. But I do really I like. Jay. The, <laughs> I do like the dynamic of the hormone monster and the hormone mistress, and you know, just I think there's a kind of very endearing quality of, like I like that there's bureaucracy to like adolescence that these monsters are kind of having to negotiate about, or yeah, um, uh, you know, when they you know one kid is you know going to get it on with another kid the hormone monsters have to kind of confer you know (laughs) it's quite endearing in a lot of respects and i think that you know it's i'm just i guess surprised that it hasn't scared people off i think there's a lot more like insane things being made nowadays and i would have said yes maybe about even five or even a couple of years ago but i think we've had a like nothing's really out of bounds anymore it's i think it's the fact that it's very honest yeah and obviously other than the slightly more surreal elements kids at that age are a bit gross yeah well it's actually kind of what i always found a little baffling about shows like the in-betweeners everyone's like oh my god this is exactly what i was like when i was 17 when i was 18 i was so i was like this is what it was like when you were 17 this is what you were like when you were 13 surely are you well, this is, I guess, the the difference is, I guess, a show like Big Mouth, <laughs> a f***ing cartoon with monsters, is far more representative of my adolescence and my kind of formative dating years than an actual show with, you know, live-action people. Uh, but I think also probably a factor is, 
I'm sure the in-betweeners wouldn't have been made if they had made the boys younger. No. Even though they are acting like they're 14. Yeah, I think yeah, probably yeah. they had to make them at least 17, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's the difference, I think, with animation. You know, and South Park has already kind of set the precedent. You can do a lot more with, with kids that are, you know, quote-unquote more honest, as long as it's framed in a ludicrous enough way. I think the most controversial it got, as far as what I've read and hearing interviews with the creators, is the episode about female body positivity. And it's two oh, like, yeah, the bit with, 14-year-old um, girls in like a, I think a, it was a spa. spa. Yeah. They go to a naked spa and they there's a song and dance number about loving your body no for all what. its dimples and pimples and warts and all and that kind of thing. Uh, and that's a great message, but the depiction of old women and middle-aged women and young women and children together, I think ruffled some puritanical I think it feathers. was more that they were worried that like it was wrong to show what were meant to be very young girls' boobs. The only time it would really be a problem, I personally think, is if they were like showing their genitalia. But then there was an earlier episode in the first season where like the other girl is just having a conversation with her, with vagina. her vagina in the mirror. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, if you put a pair of googly eyes on... A little girl's vagina, then it's fine, <laughs> and yeah. that's you know okay. You know, but it's 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 interesting. I think it's because it's disembodied, and we're not seeing it directly on her. Yeah, so it becomes another character, and yeah. But it, it's, you're it's, right; it's, it's weird that they didn't have a problem with that. Yeah, so Big Math is carrying on, which is good. Which I'm quite, I'm glad of because you know I do enjoy but it for the most um... my golf balls. <laughs> show that isn't carrying on that uh, has kind of been and gone since the uh, last episode of this that we did. And this one's a lot more confusing, is uh, Tuka and Bertie. It's not really confusing as to why it's gone. I, I'm i sad about it, because I did like it, but it took me a while. It was a show that you had to sort of bear with mm. in order for it to uh, get a hold. And I saw the post on some site about it being cancelled. Mm. And I read the comments. You know, there was a mixture of, like, Pretty much everyone was like either, oh, I'm sad, but I understand why, or I found that show so annoying, it was so loud. Which is a weird thing to say about a show when you're like, there is such thing as a volume button, for what? And it's not like other animated shows aren't loud. like. But that is a factor. Like, Tuka is very annoying quite often in it, and it does take you a while to sort of get to grips with that. Mm. And actually, it's kind of an odd show, because you sort of start off being like, for me, anyway, I went from like being like, oh, Tuka's annoying. Why would anyone be friends with this kind of person? To then going, oh, Bertie is so stupid. Okay. Like, you go for a fruit arc of being like, Tuka's the fucking saint here. Yeah. Because Bertie really needs to get her shit together. For people who don't know what we're actually talking about, this is a show that was on Netflix for one season this year. And it's about two friends, I guess, in their mid 20s, two young women. One of them is a sparrow. And the other is a toucan. And it's a very humanimals world in the sort of vein of Bojack Horseman because it's the uh, the creator is the art designer from Bojack Horseman who we had on an earlier episode of the Squiggly Animation podcast called Lisa Hanawalt, who I think is great. And I was really happy that she had a show. And I realized in hindsight, the only reason I knew this show even existed was that I follow her. And I think I follow Tiffany Haddish as well, who played Tuca. And Tiffany Haddish is a great stand-up who I saw do a show about 10 years ago in Montreal and was so convinced she was going to be, like, immediately famous. It seemed like she was really sort of killing it. And it took so long, I guess, for things to kind of happen for some people, if they happen at all, that it's only been in the last couple of years that I've even started seeing her name attached to films and things. So I was really happy that she was in a show because I think she's very funny in it. Uh, I no, I didn't actually find Tuka that annoying. I guess it's sort of the differences. I, I quite enjoyed that qual. I think the way the character was animated with her performance was really sort of joyful. Like, I just loved the way... It's kind of the same way the, the burden up just kind of makes you happy. Like, there's a way you can sort of animate birds and beaks and the sort of weird bird behavior that's kind of instilled in this it's a pretty anthropomorphized performance but it's still kind of fundamentally a bird as far as like how she moves her head and twists her head around i just found it very fun to watch you know i think it's a shame it's not going forward because i think if you can get through some of the things that you find annoying because it is very similar to bojack horseman 
in the sense that that took me quite a while to get used to and it wasn't because of the art style's a bit weird but it was because Bojack is such a downer and I know that's kind of the point. Well, everyone in the show is kind of a Yeah, downer. everyone's like, an asshole. After a while, it's like, ugh, all right. Everyone enough. is basically an <laughs> asshole in Bojack. That's kind of the yeah. take home. And in the same way, Tuca and Bertie has that kind of relentlessness to it. Like, yeah. everything's a drama. Everything's awful. But it did deal with quite a lot of issues socially and, like, women's issues. Mm. And it was very, very current as well. Yeah. And it's we've only really started to get our heads around the fact that like animation can be current in that sense and deal with like proper now issues. It's interesting that it's been cancelled when you think about how much of a drive there was last year for female-made, female-led characters. And that kind of really ticked that box. And that's what I'm a bit worried about is that it got... I could understand that maybe it didn't get the same viewers, but it has really only had one series, which... Big Mouth got two. It was a shame because I think, I mean, it deals with, like, abuse. It deals with, like, emotional issues with and how that sort of follows on into current relationships. It deals with death and family dramas and self-worth and anxiety and manic depression. Like, it dealt with a lot, a lot of issues that are obviously not completely just female-led issues but are seem to affect a lot of women and it also managed to also be really funny and rude and like Tuca and Bertie can be a bit nasty sometimes but in a very fun way they have their own melodramas that they have with each other it deals with a lot of like ideas of what you should be as a as a woman as a girlfriend as a friend as a child as a daughter as a whatever and I really like Bertie's life cycle in the sense that she she has this new partner. She has this very needy f- but very fun friend. She's quite anxious and she's very tightly wound. She has this very important job that she doesn't feel like she's being appreciated in and then is and then finds it overwhelming. She has this part-time job as well because it's something she enjoys but doesn't feel like she can completely devote her life to it. Yeah. Like She's a very flawed but also lovable very considered character that is very much a symbol of like all the things that we are expected to do but also allows us to see like how hard that is to achieve like have a really good career but also have this amazing hobby you know like if you can't make your hobby your career you keep it going anyway you know you be the best friend you can be to your friends and like the support network you have a boyfriend that you sort of like take a lot of these stresses out on because he's still there and he's very Mm. nice and and i really liked the kind of relationship arc for them where he just eventually sort of goes look you kind of and it's not in that kind of typical girl that's trying to have it all and the boyfriend's like no you don't you know that's the end you have to pick it's me or the thing he's like no you just really need to remember that i exist and not take advantage. I think the thing that I found particularly good about how that stuff was kind of incorporated into it as a show was that it wasn't afraid to be an animated show as well as being a show that had these quite sort of serious themes to it. I think that there is an appetite out there for a show like that when you look at how well a show like Fleabag has gone down. Uh, A show about being a woman, like a modern woman in the world. And and flawed, Im- and very flawed. Very idiosyncratic, very charming, bit self-destructive, having friends, doing right by your friends, not doing right by your friends. Or family. Love and intimacy, how you get things right, how you get things wrong, how you learn as you get older. I think that the way it worked for me, because you couldn't really do like Fleabag the cartoon, but the way this worked so well was okay you you have them occupy this very overtly cartoony universe where the logic and the rules are kind of building themselves as we go along with the characters and if you can kind of let go of that and have fun with it it's it's a really really enjoyable balance i thought now i felt that with bojack at the end of the day and bojack is you know obviously a, a pretty big player in the sort of modern animated series world people really dig it i like it a lot 
Uh, I have. I always feel like I have more critical things to say about it Even than most fans it. do. Like a lot of the things I really find great with that show, great as in irritate me. A lot of its hardcore fans regard as its like best attributes. But with BoJack, the blend of the serious themes and the absurdism, it was a bit of an oil and water thing. And there were long stretches of BoJack Horseman where it would just be like, okay, we're going to deal with this character and this character and this character and they're having serious time. And their narrative arc makes sense and it's very linear and it's very lucid and it's very soap opery at times and it's very dramatic. It was also like any kind of cartoon aspect that was sort of brought into it. So like Peanut Butter and the kid, I forgot his name, the guy that lives with him for most of it. Todd. Todd. It was like sarcastic cartoon. Anything that sort of weird happened in it was almost as if the show was being sarcastic about, like, oh, we're also a cartoon. But I think certainly there was a point where, like, there were these two stories going on where you may as well be watching two different shows, and one of them is Todd and his wacky adventures, and the other is Bojack with his very po-faced adventures. With Tuca and Bertie, the absurd stuff and the serious stuff... I the just... same weight. Yeah, and it, and it was all really well interwoven. That was the thing I think which was quite nice is there actually wasn't, like, unless it was intentionally meant to be sarcastic in a kind of actual people being sarcastic to one another way. Mm. Despite it being very weird and there being very surreal elements and it being quite odd as a show, it was very genuine. You could tell it came from a place of actual joy. Yeah. Like you said, though, it dealt with some serious issues but it wasn't what's the word not condescending but like look at the sad thing that's happening now this is an issue that we should address everyone gather around and have a conversation and then we'll move on to the funny yeah so yeah i'm not sure if we kind of explicitly mentioned this but this is a show where sort of love and friendship and relationships and intimacy and sex and sexual conduct and and sexual politics and things like that are all very much enmeshed with it and some of so the it scenes does, are, it does it is a recommend I think. Yeah, some of the scenes in it are great like mm. like there's this whole kind of subplot that sort of ends up being the like end of the series about Bertie's relationship with her not only her boyfriend but her new sub boss. Yeah. In the bakery and like her clear infatuation with him and that he's a bit of a wrong and but actually that doesn't come up as an issue until later on because she doesn't take it as sexual harassment but she does take she does think someone else is sexually harassing her in the office yeah because he but says it's something okay you know, when it comes from one person but not from another person and because then when you fancy that person yeah and, and then, then they le- do address that and, and then later on really someone sophisticated way later yeah on. and then someone else gets harassed and is not okay with it and then she's just like oh yeah fuck. yeah the guy pulls the same thing with like a younger new, girl you know, and she immediately kind of gets in his face about it, and it kind of... It, it was the fact that it wasn't 100% cut and dry, and that's what as, was really interesting. As life often isn't. Yeah. So it is unfortunate that um, Tuka and Betty appears to no longer be continuing, at Netflix at least. Uh, yeah, that's the point. I mean, I don't think it would have a home anywhere else, that's the sad thing. One sort of tinfoil hat theory I heard was that it seems sort of suspiciously uh, in the wake of BoJack getting unionised. And that maybe this was some kind of way of, like... Because a lot of the same people are involved. Mm. I don't really know. We'll take away Bertie. Like, we'll take away, like, a different show kind of we'll thing. We'll take away the fun show. I wish... Maybe it was making them all too happy. Like, they want them to get back into the headset of, like, manic depression to start BoJack again. What's absolutely kind of certain is that Netflix did very, very little to promote it. Yeah, there was a true. guy who no works on Netflix who put up a tweet saying... This was directly in response to, like, I think people kind of complaining that, what, Big Mouth gets three seasons, but Tuca doesn't even get one kind of thing. Mm. Like, Big Mouth kind of, I think, unfairly got a lot of shit for that. Yeah. Um, I think if that had been announced separately, people would be very excited. But there was this guy from Netflix who put up a tweet saying, just out of curiosity, when you say that Netflix doesn't do enough to promote a show, what do you mean by that exactly? And then he, there was this long thread that kind of ensued of people sort of saying, well, you could do this, you could do And it turned into this kind of, like, demographic survey thing mm. that uh, whether or not it'll actually be taken. But one person who replied to him made the best point. It's like, when I say Netflix doesn't promote it, I mean, it's because you literally didn't do anything to promote it. And she put a link to the one single tweet 
from Netflix's official Twitter account about Tuca and Bertie, and it was from a year ago, linking to a news article about Tiffany Haddish being cast in it. Mm. And every other tweet, I, looking back, it was all from people involved in the show. But Netflix, maybe like other Netflix accounts, like different international accounts did. Mm. But the main one was not behind the show. Yeah, it's weird, and isn't it? you can't do this, well, what do you mean we didn't promote it? Kind of, the, if you, you didn't do anything. But no. then I also don't think they've really promoted Big Mouth that much. I think it's just that, that it happens to have a lot of very famous people that are in it. I th- No, I saw quite a few ads for Big Mouth. Oh, okay, fair enough. To be I fair. I think also that's the other thing, though, is that Big Mouth does have a lot more actors and people in general that people would know and associate with other shows. Yeah, they all kind of have their own respective fan bases. Mm. Yeah, so that kind of yeah contributes automatically. At any rate, yeah, I don't know what the future fate of Tuca and Bertie will be. Hopefully it will continue to exist in some form or other, or on some platform or other. Uh, I know Lisa Hannah-Walt, uh, another string to her bow is that she does graphic novels, so there might be something in that. I'll be up for a Tuca and Bertie comic. Looking to the present, I guess uh, we could move on to this episode's guest, who has also done some animation for Netflix. We just took a look at something she had done for a TV show called Explained. Uh, It's a Netflix documentary series, and this episode is called The Female Orgasm. And there's a sequence that she did in that, which is, to me, a little reminiscent of uh, Ruth Lingford's old film. Do you remember Little Deaths? Yeah, the one about orgasms. That would be the one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The documentary itself kind of reminded me of uh, Laurie Malapart Traverse's film, Le Clitoris, you know, which we talked about in the first or second season. Uh, It has a lot of the same kind of points about, like, the history of the female orgasm and how the man has planted his flag in it, so to speak, over the years. Painful. And how Sigmund Freud is a big bellend. That is one of the the rough things about, like, being prominent in a sort of academic field or a sort of medical or scientific field is, like, after you're gone, the world can sort of... (laughs) repeatedly on you yeah just discover like just you were so bad at what you you weren't just a little bit bad at what you did you got everything wrong everything you've done wrong so yeah so caitlin mccarthy relative newcomer to the scene i think she's london based uh she's part of a agency called strange beast i think it's an agency or a studio or design collective that sort of combination of independent and commercial work and uh so she did this thing for Netflix and Vox, and it's a kind of assortment of semi-abstract visuals accompanying various people's descriptions of what orgasm is like. Like I mentioned, it's a bit reminiscent of Little Death, but it has a bit more of, I think, a contemporary edge to it. Little moments more of kind of directly sort of humorous visual interpretations and things like that. And that's something that kind of rears its head quite a bit in her work. She's done a couple of sort of independent self-started films uh one called paraphilia which is a little look at various sexual kinks and uh most recently cold Soul, which is the film that will be playing at encounters next month uh so we're going to talk to her about that and uh her previous work and stuff she's working on now i think as far as introducing her further it's probably best to hand it over to her so shall we hear from caitlin mccarthy yes so here's caitlin mccarthy i'm caitlin I guess I would call myself an animation director, but I do also have to be crew quite a lot of the time. I studied illustration at Camberwell. I was doing a lot of drawing and they kind of were like, stop drawing, it's stupid. Um, (laughs) That's paraphrasing. That's kind of odd advice from an illustration degree. I think the course leader is just so sick of people doing nice faux naive drawings because he's been there for so long. (laughs) But they always they try and push you into doing really weird stuff. So I made loads of weird, like horrible video art. Um, my final piece was I made a giant slice of silicon ham that was a meter wide, <laughs> and a video of like me throwing it up in the air over and over again. I got my dad to read out Craigslist ads listings about people looking for a platonic friendship. <laughs> But yeah, that was. Some people thought that was like three D animated, and they were like impressed. But it was actually just me throwing. I just threw it in the air. Throwing the hammer about. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
sorry, I got sidetracked there. <laughs> um, uh, and then, yeah, I graduated. I started trying to do a bit of 3D animation. I went back to drawing and I was doing a bit of 3D animation because I thought 2D seemed like the longest, most boring thing in the world. And I kind of like managed to, I was, you know, graduate and I was like, what am I going to do? Well, I guess I'm an animator now. I ended up having a meeting with Kitty, who's the executive producer of Strange Beast. And then she introduced me to Rob, who's Parallel Teeth, the director. And I managed to kind of like keep emailing him about video games for long enough that he let me work on a job. <laughs> yeah, so he kind of taught me how to animate uh, like a lot of what I know he taught me. And then I just sort of hung around Strange Beast being a parasite until they were forced to sign me because I was just going to be in the building whether or not they liked it. Were you kind of <laughs> doing work experience or freelancing or just showing yeah. up? Free, I mean, so, yeah, I kind of did a couple of, like, I worked for Rob and then I did some, like, clean-up and colouring on other jobs. Uh, and they were very kind and were like, well, if you ever need to come in and use a Cintiq, then you can. And I, like, really took them up on the offer and just <laughs> showed up every single day, basically. Uh, but it worked out. Uh, so that I guess that's how I got here. What do you think was a sort of catalyst i guess like you being a presence there going from that to being kind of you know on their roster was there a particular project that kind of pushed you forward well they sort of encouraged me to like i had a meet i went for like a coffee with some of the producers there once and i was really scared that they were gonna be like you need to stop wasting our resources uh, but they they were kind of like you you could direct and you should like make a short film because I was just making a lot of like little gifts and stupid things. And they're kind of, so they encouraged me to try making a short film, which is the, the paraphilia film. That's mm. just kind of a collection of short gifts. That was like going to be a whole alphabet. It's going to be the A to Z of paraphilias and it was going to be a different fetish for each letter. But, I got distracted and gave up halfway through. So we like, put together like a little rough edit uh, so that it wasn't just wasted animation. <laughs> I guess an element of a recurring subject matter in your work, it does tend to kind of fall in line a bit with a lot of what we talk about on this particular podcast. Yeah. Uh, in the case of this particular film, then what was it that I guess kind of drew you to that as subject matter? I think so. I'm like quite, Sex obsessed, but not in like a in a in like the way of like a kind of in the same way that train spotters like trains. <laughs> okay. Like as an outsider, I'm like, wow, that's so weird and interesting. Um, and I think that's probably because I spent like way too much time on the internet growing up, just like seeing loads of really weird, horrible things. <laughs> I got like a taste for it. Yeah, I just love I just love things that I find kind of bizarre and disgusting. Mm. I sort of really revel in <laughs> being like not outraged but kind of like taken aback by things so I'm like I just thought if I can collect all of these weird fetishes that I've like researched about on the internet and present them all in one I think that would be quite cool and everyone will be really grossed out but they'll have a fun time because mm. <laughs> even within it being a kind of I guess redux version of um what you originally had in mind yeah it does have a bit of a gamut to it like there's a couple of things that are pretty innocuous and yeah. then a couple of things that are a bit more extreme i guess and some that are just kind of weird yes but. um also I'm, I'm i mean i still am but like at that time especially because i made that when i had only really been animating like 2d for maybe like six months or something so a lot of it's like just like hmm well i don't really know how to do what I actually want to show. So what's like a kind of more abstract way to show this thing? And also I think I think it would be a, a little bit like battering ram if I was just showing like sexual act, sexual act, sexual act, like mm. over and over again. Which is like a bit extreme. I want to gross people out, but not like that much. I also think that, you know, within short films and animation just showing sex in a very kind of direct literal way has kind of been done to death. Mm -hmm. And I think that certainly what we've, we found with a lot of the stuff that we've discussed, 
as well as your work, like taking a sort of slightly different angle or a more sort of abstract or interpretative mm -hmm. angle often makes for a much more interesting film. Yeah, I think when you kind of make anything less literal, it's more like interesting. Also, I think it sort of suits animation a little better, like the sort of... Yeah, like the physics of the human body are really hard if you wanted to animate an actual sex scene really well. You'd have to be like, actually quite good at animating. <laughs> I guess uh, like if it was going to be sort of really anatomically precise. Yeah. Yeah. I guess also sort of like in terms of abstract or, or kind of a mix of abstract uh, interpretations of ideas, we popped up the thing you did for Vox recently um, yeah. on Netflix. That was interesting. It reminded me of um, a couple of things that have come up before, but it was nice to sort of see it in this particular style. Mm -hmm. It took, I guess, a style that you're kind of working on establishing I yeah. made a really, really good use of it, the sort of colours and the forms and, like you said before, kind of faux naivete. Yeah. I think that works really well in in lieu of, you know, something very anatomically precise, which probably would have felt a bit cold yeah, in the definitely. context of that kind of thing. That was the first time I ever had, like, any crew. Mm. So the way I think of it, the character design of those is a lot more, like, anatomically correct than I would design if I was going to animate something completely myself because they're a bit more, like, natural. Mm -hmm. um, but I had really good animators who were able to do that kind of flowy movement mm. that I can't do. <laughs> also, that was kind of a... It was sort of weird for me to do the, something kind of, like, very ethereal and very, like, earnest. Mm. I mean, I think I take the piss a little bit with the... Virgin Mary smiling bit hmm. but um, it was interesting because when that was kind of coming about we all watched the video edit of all the women talking and we're like this must be just like such an American thing because if you asked like 10 English women to describe their orgasms they would kind of, <laughs> I think it would be a lot more like blunt and uh, <laughs> a bit less beautiful yeah I mean it they conjured great imagery hmm. to work with was that something that you were approached for or was it something that you kind of pitched for? Yeah, they just, um, I don't know how they found me because that was quite early. Mm. <laughs> but uh, one of the art directors at Box was just like, hello, would you like to do this thing about female orgasm? And I was like, obviously, yes, I do. That sounds very cool. I thought it was going to be more stupid, but I think it was good in the end <laughs> that, it was, that it was quite like a beautiful kind of thing. Hmm. You mentioned before about like how um, there are sort of animated elements, the kind of flowiness and stuff like that, that you can't do. Yeah. I mean, do you find that working with people is kind of helping as far as building your animation like ability? Um, I mean, I mainly usually, if, it, if I'm directing something, I usually animate it myself because, um, you know, budgets. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I think I'm kind of like finally, because I've, I've been animating maybe like two and a half years in this kind of way, maybe like two, three years. And like, I think I'm just about, my Dunning-Kruger effect is just about wearing off. Because <laughs> I always think it's like, I'm like, wow, so charming that I don't know what I'm doing. And now I'm looking at things I do and I'm like, oh God, I need to, like, I, yeah, it's reached that point where it's like, okay, I can see where what I need to do, but I'm not quite there yet. But so it's it's so great when I can have crew and I can just be like, mm, I want it to do this. Mm. And then it just kind of like materializes. And it's really nice as well working with people. I work a lot with my friend Sasha Beely, who's also a really great director, but we've kind of worked together so much that I don't even have to fully describe what I like. I can just make a series of sounds and she's like, yeah, I know exactly <laughs> what that is and I'll do it now. <laughs> When it comes to, I guess, crewing up then, is everything sort of done within Strange Beast or do you kind of have a pool of other artists that you like to go to? Uh, yeah, it's, well, there's just like kind of a regular cast of characters in the building. So, yeah, just like freelancers. Um, but I usually, if, I mean, if there's going to be crew, then I'll do it through Strange Beast because I need help <laughs> like with production and everything. But yeah, so it's through them but there's kind of like a, a bunch of regulars so I kind of know who I want for what and everything yeah have you done any work with Anna Ginsberg I've worked for her a lot mm -hmm. especially 
when I was first starting to animate. And I think that's probably another thing that influences because she has like just a mad way of animating. Like I can't describe it like the way she does it. She like does an onion skin and she like animates straight ahead mm. and you like it's and does it all in like individual JPEGs and then puts them into like I probably should be giving away her trade secrets, actually. <laughs> but I, I just don't understand how she does it. But it's it has, it's got this really beautiful, like it comes out very beautiful and very, it's it's very her own, the actual, the way that her work moves. And also she makes the most detailed animatics in the whole world. They're basically films. But yeah, I've worked for her a lot. She's one of like the first people I worked for. So I think getting used to working with her style probably has influenced, maybe not stylistically, but in the way that I animate, I think has influenced me. I could, I could see that in a couple of sense. Like, I think the point you made about that Virgin Mary sequence. Yeah. I could see a little bit sort of reminiscent of like moments in private parts. Yeah. But by and large, I think you're kind of, you're going down your own path, like artistically. Yeah, <laughs> Uh, I think certainly with like Cold Saw, it has a very kind of uh, specific identity to it. Yeah. So I think I saw this film, I forget exactly where, I've been involved in a couple of festivals, and I think I did see it when it went online initially. Mm. And uh, I guess before we go into sort of the the making of the film, something I'm kind of curious about as far as sort of contemporary filmmaking and distribution is the value i suppose of festivals when you've released something online that's had a really nice reception like people have responded to it really positively at that point is there still a kind of value in having it seen at festivals and even after it's sort of had its online on yeah audience? i mean it, it's my first film so um, and also i so i saw it at pictoplasma this year but that's the first animation festival i've ever been to so at least like for me it's like kind of just like the novelty of the experience to be like I'm at a festival <laughs> that means that means and also yeah that's like well that means that I'm I'm really good because I got into this particular festival I think yeah I mean just in the way that you get to cut like because I think it, it can have a good reception online like it's got you know it's got like views on Vimeo and like it's had like a write-up or whatever, but you don't really know at all what people think about it. Do you know what I mean? You get like, and I guess even when you go to festivals, it's not like, I don't know, you don't like find out what the one opinion about it is, but it's like another thing to make you feel like, okay, whatever I did wasn't like a stupid hmm. idiot thing that was for no point. <laughs> did you put it online like as soon as it was done or was there a kind of grace period i guess to sort of test the waters first i wanted to put it out on valentine's day uh-huh. because it's a romantic film <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and so that was basically because i'd been working on it for about a year on and off in between paying jobs because it's just kind of like something i did to be like this is my kind of this is what I like to, you know, to be like, hello world, this is me, and this is the kind of thing that you should expect from me. So I really wanted to put it out on Valentine's Day, so then that became the deadline, and I had to, like, it was quite a push to get it all done for them. So, yeah, it was basically, like, a couple of days after mm-hmm. I'd finished it that um, I put it out, just because... Also, like, I don't... Like, I can't imagine ever keeping a film under wraps mm-hmm. in order to get it to go around the festivals, because I just... I, I like instant gratification. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of, I know that sort of feeling as well. I think for me, what curbs that is a sort of, if I put it out online and it's a catastrophic failure, <laughs> at least it's where I'm delaying that. If yeah, I'm yeah. trying to get to festivals for a year or so first. Um, I, don't, I feel like I want to know if it's a catastrophic failure or a success <laughs> immediately, and then I can move on with my life. Well, it did very well, which is great. Um, and, uh, I think in the context of something like, uh, Late Lounge, which I'm, I think is what it's playing in, um, it's absolutely going to be perfect. Like those are always kind of event highlights at encounters. So yeah, I'm looking forward to sort of seeing that with an audience as well. Yeah. So, uh, as you mentioned, it's a love story. 
does it come from anywhere in particular? Like, is it's it... like a very thinly veiled self-portrait. <laughs> um, <laughs> basically, everyone who's doing animation or anything creative, mm. you're basically just trying to put yourself... It's the same as being like an Instagram model or something, but you're just like not that confident in your look, so you have to create something and put it out there so that mm. you can get validation. So I think my kind of like technique for making a film is like, hmm, what's a bad quality of mine? And then I'll just make it into something funny so that then people will like it and then that makes it okay as a thing. So <laughs> I think that raises its head quite a bit in like comedy and stuff, especially kind of yeah. creator-driven comedy. People will put a very idiosyncratic version of themselves yeah. as the main character. I wouldn't have guessed it was a self-portrait. <laughs> but then, of course, we're all... We're very different beasts when we're in school, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, it's wild, It's blown wildly out of proportion. Uh-huh. But I was kind of sitting alone on the internet talking to strange men for a lot of my teenage years. So I think uh-huh. that element <laughs> is, is uh, yeah, self-portrait. I'd imagine that kind of informs probably one of my favorite bits in the film, which is the section that invites kind of going through it frame by frame when all Uh the messages pop up. Yeah. And there's some lovely kind of absurdism in there. Are those kind of from real life? They're sort of a mixture. Like I did go through, because I've had, I have a fake, or not fake, I have a, like a okay Cupid um, account that I've had for years that I don't ever use. And it just has the like, profile section is just like a list of hot dog ingredients um and so it's something that's so stupid and like the the photo is like a picture of me in a gimp mask eating a cheeseburger it's like you it's not something that it's very obviously not a person who's actually like out looking for love but uh-huh. I, I it still gets like millions and millions of messages of people earnestly trying to uh-huh. have a chat so i kind of pulled a bit from that and also just like also just from my brain and also being like to my friends and people around me, like, what's a horrible message that you've got? Mm. That kind of thing. But maybe it's own paraphilia, like attraction to gimp masks and hot dog ingredients. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there's someone out there. There's, there's someone with every single fetish in the world, I'm sure. <laughs> the main uh, subject of the film, the sort of pursuit for facial herpes, <laughs> is kind of... Slightly atypical uh, premise for a romantic <laughs> comedy. Was there a sort of motivation behind that, or was it just something that kind of came to you? Or yeah, it just came. I was I uh, had a boyfriend at the time who had a cold sore, and then it, I think basically I also I watched like a lot of teen movies, like dark, like Heather's is one of my favorite films, oh. kind of like dark dark teen comedies. And the idea basically just came to me fully formed, mm. but it was inspired by my ex-boyfriend's actual facial sore. Mm. Is, he, is he happy to be represented through art? I don't know. I'm not with <laughs> him anymore. <laughs> what I quite like also is the kind of, I guess, inciting thing is the um, obsession or, I guess, just attachment to this very popular girl yeah. who happens to have the herpes. And that's sort of the motivation more than anything else. It's like she's coming yeah. with some great accoutrement. Yeah. And then it all being for naught at the end. Yeah, have to have a bad ending. I couldn't have let it turned out well. Mm. That would have not been, not been me. <laughs> <laughs> but that whole thing, uh, I, I guess that was quite inspired by like Mean Girls. There's one scene where, I don't know if you've seen Mean Girls. When it came out so a while ago. Yeah, but. I've seen it many times. But there's <laughs> So they, they try and sabotage the Regina George, the main popular girl, by cutting hole in her top so that she's her bra is showing through her top and then she's just like hmm that's fine and walks away and everyone's like oh my god that's the coolest thing I've ever seen she's so sexy and cool so that's like I think that scene was like majorly a thing that gave me the idea for the story Hmm. but also I wanted to I like that it's yeah she's not at all she's not actually interested in kissing anyone it's just about wanting to be valuable rather than yeah an actual crush on like a weird old man she met on yeah. Yeah, I think that's something that I think everyone probably has something in the, the closets of their mind of a moment when they were growing up where, you know, they just wanted to be kind of seen. Yeah. I think that was quite <laughs> resident. <certainly. laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> so I guess uh, the making of this film sort of from a technical angle, uh, was it sort of similar in terms of the thing you did for Vox? Like, 
as far as the team or was it a different approach? It was just, um, so yeah, it was pretty much just me making it every time I had some spare time in between jobs. And in the end, I got really stuck on a lot of walk cycles. So my good friend Matt Lloyd did, I think, all but one of the walk cycles in the film. (laughs) But everything else was kind of just me doing it in my spare time. And yeah, it it was over a whole year that I made it. So it was very like bitty and piecey. So there's kind of like... I'm at different skill levels during <laughs> <laughs> making a bit as well. Yeah, and that with that in mind, it, it holds together. It's very consistent. I think you've you've really hit upon a kind of design style and color palette that really yeah. works very effectively as far as holding those sort of different stages of <laughs> development together. But I I wouldn't really I think be able to go through it and pick through chronologically where. I think actually, I mean, the, like the, some of the first shots I did were actually probably the best animation because I didn't have even a semblance of a deadline. So even yeah. though I, didn't, I wasn't as kind of like, I think maybe I didn't know as many like tricks and like ways to cheat. So I actually was like, I'll do a full turnaround of this woman and it will take <laughs> me four days. <laughs> yeah. Are you able to talk about what you're working on at the moment or is it kind of under wraps? I don't know. Okay. I think I think I can probably talk about it, but maybe I just won't go into who it's for. That's probably fine. Sure. This is also a love story. Ah. Um, I don't know if I'll ever do a film that isn't... I'm actually working on two films. I've got one that's more of a slow burner that's like not a follow-up to Cold Sword, but like a personal film that's a bit longer that I want to make. And that one is about um, a girl who works at a bowling alley and she has a big crush on one of the boys who comes into bowl, and then she kind of has like a horrible obsession with him that spirals out of control. I don't want to say too much because okay. I might never make it as well. <laughs> um, uh, but the one I'm working on now is um, the premise is it's a boy who's, I actually based his character design off an incel from a documentary that I thought had quite a nice look. And he, goes into the corner shop to buy a lighter to smoke his cigarettes um, and he gets a lighter that has like a really sexy babe on it and him and the lighter fall in love <laughs> and then it just it goes all terribly wrong at the end because I, <laughs> I won't allow happy endings in my work uh, but I won't say too much about it. Yeah. Was that the, uh, the quite recent documentary? On the Vice or? one. Ah, okay, but I've not. watched every documentary i'm obsessed with them yeah i've only seen one sort of quite recently on the bbc um oh i've watched it, yeah but uh yeah it's a i could imagine kind of going down that rabbit hole it's quite fascinating in a horrible way yeah um, I, I love it i don't love them but i love reading about them yeah uh, it's sort of a similar thing like i guess like flat earthers and things like that like things yeah. where you just kind of become <laughs> fascinated but then it gets a bit horrible so i kind of have to stop you know <laughs> i think i haven't learned to stop <laughs> mm. so your new film idea then if you were making this last film kind of in your free time yeah. was it a largely kind of unfunded thing yeah so okay. for cold Soul, mm. yeah um strange beast paid for the sound but other than that it was completely worked on it in my spare time mm. as like a passion project but that was very helpful. That was very nice. <laughs> Thank you to Caitlin McCarthy for talking to us about her work and her film Cold Soul will be playing at Encounters on Thursday, September 26th at 10pm at the Watershed. That's part of the Late Lounge screening and that's always a, a good time. Visit encounters.film to see the full schedule and you can see more of Caitlin McCarthy's work on Vimeo if you look for Caitlin McCarthy and uh, she has an artist profile at strangebeast.tv where you can see some of her commercial projects as well as some of her other short form work and uh, her gifts and various other things lots of great stuff to check out there thank you very much to Caitlin for uh, joining us in the first episode of season 3 of Intimate Animation it's so good to be back and thank you, Laura Beth Cowley, for joining me. You're welcome. Uh, yeah, we'll see you all again soon. Happy intimate animating. Bye-bye. <laughs>